Crafties to the Arena Craft Podcast, a show dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. I am one of your hosts, The Throat. The other host will introduce himself accordingly. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> That that voice is a beautiful instrument. I feel like you're just destroying it, like you're dragging it across a, a thing of hot coals and just stepping on it too. And it's just you know what ah. you know what Kovaco Blue. You know what just happened? It was like we were in a gymnastics troupe, and I like did like this beautiful setup. You know, I was like poised uh-huh. on the on the on the double beam or whatever it's called and i was like ready to catch you and you just like swiped my legs right out from under me i thought we were doing gymnastics and you were doing judo i it, this is another setup and all i can say is i just care too much to let that continue <laughs> i care about you i love you i care bro. about our listeners and maybe i'm looking out slightly for my own ears but as a person We've done many incredible voices. I I know that you only get so much of that before your voice starts to feel it, and you you have such a beautiful voice. I'd hate to see it destroyed for the Why, entertainment. Th- thank you, sir. Well, your concern is much appreciated, and we are, after all, in this for the long run. So, on today's episode, we uh, we've actually decided to do another deep dive topic. Because, you know, I'm not going to say that, like, the matter's solved or anything in either standard or historic, but things are slowing down a little bit. It's, you know, we've, we've started to see some of the pillars of the format emerge, and we're always looking for opportunities to bring in these topics that we would like to cover that we just haven't really had a chance to do. So today we are going to be talking about how to attack a meta game. And this is just something that's been on my mind for a while, and I think it's quite timely because Covert Go Blue just got number one in Best of One. So that's primarily what we're going to be talking about today. Not, not, not me being number one Best of One, right? But what we're really talking about is attacking the metagame, not necessarily just me talking about that, right? I think. I mean, I could do it. I just don't know if I don't know if you want to. I brought you on for a repeat, <laughs> CGB. Okay, I just, I'm a special guest. I I ran out of ideas, and I just want you to riff. I, we need to milk it. You know, we need to milk it. Well, then it's we're fresh. Very successful right now. I, like this is su- successful milking of the opening. Quick, do another voice so I can shoot down how lame it is. <laughs> lame. <laughs> I mean, I care about you and your beautiful vocal. Qu- move on. Move on. <laughs> Editor, cut all of this. Moving swiftly on. (laughs) We have a question of the week, which was directed squarely at me. Evil Empire 324 from our Discord says, what is the best approach to building Yori Index? Directed squarely at me, of, of course. Clearly. Is there even that much you do differently? I'm sometimes guilty of doing 80 card piles that feel like they have too much fluff. But the Nivno Light Historic deck by Mengu is a solid mid-range pile. Sky Noodle. And then they finish with a CGB Yorian emote directed squarely at me. So, how do you process this question, Kovac Goblu? 
Well, first of all, Evil Empire, thank you very much for the question. I believe Evil Empire is doing YouTube videos. I think I've seen him in my spells, my uh, self-promotion channel, so consider having a look. I'm sure they'll appreciate the shout-out. Um, all right. How to build a Yorian deck. The guide from the one who builds way too many Yorian decks in Best of One, and that's me. I... I, I've done it so much, I can actually crank them out pretty fast because I know basically what my land count should be. I know which early removal spells are good. But a lot of it depends on the format, and a lot of it depends on the goals of your deck. So it's not an easy question to answer, but if I were building a Yorian deck, uh, in, in order to try to properly answer it, I start with 32 lands and 4 Birth of Melitus, or 34 to 35 lands if I don't run Birth of Melitus. I skew to like five or six planes, so I have a lot of targets for those because I plan to blink the birth every now and then. After that, I usually want... It depends on how controlling, again, are we playing counter spells? Are we just trying to put stuff on the battlefield for Yorian? But you want early removal. You probably want 10 to 12 pieces of removal that you can play on like turn two, just so that you don't get completely run over. And probably four sweepers if you're that style of deck, Extinction Event or Doomscar being my favorites. And then after that, you really look hard for what you blink with Yorian. Sometimes your removal spell is something you might blink with Yorian, like Glass Casket, but don't bank on that. And uh, But this is where you look for the Elspeth Conqueror's Death, the Binding of the Old Gods, things of that nature. And you try to fill the deck up with that. Also, other things that work well with Yorian, but indirectly, like Archon of Sun's Grace, which makes a bunch of Pegasus tokens when the creatures come back, you grab that. If you're going to run a card like Elspeth Conquers Death, you want enough creatures so that Chapter 3 goes off and gets you something on a regular basis. Um, Planeswalkers don't particularly work well with Yorian most of the time, so creatures are normally better. So that's where you end up with Skyclave Apparition, uh, Baron. In Historic, you end up with a few more interesting cards lately, like Thraben Inspector etc etc but i've got the template mostly down for my numbers and i think that one of the things that people miss the most is when you turn a deck into a yorian deck it is not your excuse to run garbage like they build a 60 card deck and actually what they do is they build like they have like the 70 cards they like right and then they cut it down to we're at 63 cards and these last three cards like you cannot bear it to take these cards out. You, you love these cards. You are attached to the hip with the idea that your Vorinclex and your Ugin are going to be on the battlefield at the same time. And you say, well, I could just build a Yorian deck, and now I get those cards. And now that I have these spots to fill instead of spots to cut, wow, wouldn't it be cool if there was also a Terror of the Peaks involved somehow? And, it, like, the, the, the wormhole goes deeper, right? So... Uh, I, tr like, I start with the Yorian. I never take a deck and turn it into a Yorian deck to add goofy cards. I always start with, this is 80 cards. I usually build my mana base first. Then I add the removals and the sweepers. And then I decide, like, how the shell of the cards that work with Yorian go. Like, I, I, I build it in reverse order so I don't end up being too janky, I guess. So let's start there. How do you decide from the get-go that building around a particular card or sets of cards is going to end up being a Yorian deck. Well, there's usually a card that I have in mind that I want to blink. That That is one of the more obvious things. Like, if I know I'm going to run Binding of the Old Gods in this deck, I don't think there's any question I want it to be a Yorian deck, so I just go from there. I'm, I've come to the opinion that 
if I'm going to run a card like that, it's strictly better to have the option to buy a Yorian than not to. So if I can fill the deck out, which I probably can, uh, then just starting from a Yorian position is a good one. Uh, the other thing that I do pretty often is if my deck is going to be particularly slow without great removal, I'm thinking like Bant, Blue-White. These are piles that don't have great cheap removal most of the time. I'm going, I don't want to get milled out by rogues like that fast. So if I know that these colors are better off as Yorian piles because I need a better matchup with rogues because I'll just get destroyed by them, then I don't want to lose to Rune Crab. Then I start with Yorian. Why not? Why not indeed? Uh, especially if you'll Kovac go blue. So mm-hmm. um, here's a question I have. Do you have like a heuristic for a target minimum number of good blinkable things before you decide to build a Yorian deck? Oh, it depends on what... It depends on the impact, right? Um, but honestly, you don't need many because as long as you have enough good cards in your colors and like every color has access to so many good cards lately, you just need a few good things to blink. The Sultai Ultimatum list is a pretty good example of a Yorian deck that it, it has Omen and maybe you'll blink Nightmare sometimes and you definitely want to blink Binding. Maybe you blink a Chariot. But other than that, it's not built around the idea of Yorian blinking everything. And then there are other decks where it's like, we want every permanent in the deck to get blinked. You know, those are the Charming Prince piles where you can't get enough flickers, you know? Right, right. It depends. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair answer. I have definitely learned that you really don't need, just like you said, you don't need that many blink targets to make your Yorian deck good. It's often just more about what the plan is. Yorian decks are obviously like late game decks, so... I would not recommend anyone build a Yorian deck if they're not planning to take the game past, like, turn 7. I'm sure there are exceptions, but that's generally a good rule, I think. Not a bad rule. Here's another thing to think about. I've I've had people suggest this to me before, and I didn't want to, like, go on stream, go deep about why this is kind of a faulty way of thinking about it, but we're talking about it now, so I think now's a good opportunity to put this out there, but... I've had people suggest to me, oh, I see you're running a deck with a lot of like three ofs or two ofs. Why don't you just upgrade them all to four ofs and make it a Yorian deck? And initially, the logic of that seems to check out, right? You're like, yeah, well, you know, Yorian deck is, I'm basically adding, uh, what is it, like 33% of cards to my deck, right? And so if I change threes to fours, I'm maintaining the same ratio or the same kind of opportunity to draw that card in my deck that I would in a 60 card deck, right? Mm-hmm. So it on the surface of it, it kind of makes sense. But when you start to think about what actually happens in the game of magic, the logic breaks down pretty quickly. So for example, there are some spells that get a lot worse in multiples. Okay, so let's take a good example. Let's say that you're running a deck in 60 cards with two mystical disputes in it. And, you, you know, you've made that for whatever choice you've made in the meta game because it lines up in your mind. One of the things that's not going to happen to you in that game of magic is you drawing three mystical disputes because you, you don't have three mystical disputes in your deck. So if you increase the number of cards like that in your deck, even if the density of those cards is the same, you're increasing the likelihood you draw three of them because you have three of them in your deck. So it's kind of the same thing. Like if, if there's any card in which you're probably going to lose the game if you draw that many copies of it, 
you have to be you have to think about it so i wonder if you have any thoughts about this cgb like how do you walk that line between kind of maintaining the balance of a number of cards in your deck while also not having these draws where you flood out and draw like four copies of mystical dispute in your yorian deck so first of all i have to say you're absolutely right and while it sounds at first somebody's gonna be like but but what are the chances that you drew that you draw three mystical disputes in your 80 card deck so for every single card that you turn into a four of the the chances increase you know what i mean so in that example you said where you just turn all of your twos and threes into fours one of them is probably going to be a card that you draw more of than you wanted to uh, in a good amount of games that one of those cards gets drawn too often and matchups where they don't make sense and i think a lot of people don't really see that they see that it's all or nothing either you like this card or you don't and then you show them a legendary card and you say well this is a legendary card you can't have two on the battlefield and that makes sense to them and they'll say one or two that makes sense but a card like mystical dispute in their head they've drawn this up where i hate losing the blue deck so i want one of these in my hand at all times well do you do you want one in your hand on turn eight when they just pay three and they get a and their spell resolves that's that's not great you know so uh, I, I always refer to a book by Patrick Shapin, Next Level Deck Building, that had like really went into depth. Uh, and I still read this every now and then. I've got the book over here on my shelf. It really, really went into depth on when you want one, when you want two, when you want three, when you want four, and the concept of dim diminishing returns. That book, since I mentioned it, and people are probably going to DM me, it's only available from Star City Games. We are not sponsored but that just came up in this conversation. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's a pretty deep topic, but the idea is that it, any card you do want to draw in a specific matchup at a specific time, and that drawing too many of those can be a bad thing. They just don't solve the problem. They're not a universal solution. The other thing I want to say that I think you're kind of uh, knocking on the door of that I want to get out there is if I want my deck to have a better chance of a specific type of draw, it shouldn't be a Yorian deck. Uh, and usually what I base that around is, do you have one drops that are amazing in multiples? And the ones that come to mind for me are Thieves Guild Enforcer, Edgewall Innkeeper, Speaker of the Heavens, Fervent Champion. And another one that, you know, since we want to hit all five colors here, Hateful Eidolon, I'll throw in there too, although it doesn't see as much play. But these are cards that are super synergistic with your deck and are amazing in multiples. And you want to increase your odds of drawing multiples. You just do. The, the games where you have multiples of those that card in your opening hand, you win more. Like, that shouldn't be a Yorian deck. You are decreasing your odds of having that. Those draws will be less frequent. Yep. Another great example is Embercleave. Not that you would ever necessarily put an Embercleave in your Yorian deck, but that's the kind of card that, like, you really, do, like, when you need an Embercleave off the top, you really need an Embercleave off the top. And so. What are you, what are you talking about, man? When you blink your Embercleave, you get a free equip. <laughs> Sick. <laughs> Attack with my creature, combo. blink my Embercleave, put it on my blocker. We're really doing it. Pure combo. 
<laughs> Just another thing to note as well. People talk about how your index are less consistent. They definitely are. One of the reasons for that, which now I am no professor of mathematics, so I can't really delve deep into this, but basically we have it on good authority from people such as um who's the who's the like magic mathematician, the German guy. Frank Carsten. Yes, Frank Carsten has talked about how you're basically more likely to flood in a Yorian deck, like in an 80-card deck or in a commander deck, in a 100-card deck, than you are in a 60-card mm -hmm. deck. And basically, here's the simple way to explain why that happens. Even if you have the same percentage of lands, it's more likely to happen when you have more lands. Here's a simple way to think about it. When you have more total lands in your deck, the chances of more of them being together increase. So let's say, for example, you're playing in a limited deck. You have 17 lands and 23 cards. The most polarized that deck can be is 17 lands in a row, 23 cards in a row. Now, if, yep. if you upgrade it to a 60-card deck with 24 lands, the most lands that could possibly be in a row in that deck is 24. And then with a Yorian deck, the most lands that could be in a row in that deck are how many lands you're running in that deck. So the larger the deck gets, the greater the pool is of possibilities where you have a bunch of the same kind of card in a row. So that's, yeah, that's the simple way of putting it. We're talking about possibilities, not probabilities. All of these things are unlikely. But the thing that you have to understand with magic is a possibility is going to be true exactly like something is going to happen you are playing the game something is going to line up and the more of those outcomes that you make possible that aren't as fav favorable the more often you will see them eventually you know millions of games of magic are being played somewhere somebody woke up to like tw 20 lands in a row it's just the way it is like somebody gets that somebody gets that game and then they get to go complain about the shuffler and how the universe hates them <laughs> Absolutely. It's one of the reasons you see so many Omens of the Sea and so many, um, you know, Maze Mind Tomes and stuff like that in your index is that they increase consistency. And so that is why, in addition to being good blink targets, you play cards like that in a Yorian deck. Cool. All right. I think that we've definitely spoke enough on that topic. Thank you for the question, Evil Empire. Really appreciate that. You too can ask a lightning round question by joining our Discord. Okay, so now we're transitioning into our main topic here, which is how to attack a metagame. And one of the reasons that I mentioned CGB's run to number one, which he did very recently, was that he displayed a really, really good example of metagaming. Now, we've already talked a lot about that on the previous show, so if you want to get the in-depth take on that. You can listen to episode number 65, where CGB talks about why he decided to play mono-white life gain, especially in a matter in which a lot of people thought the dominant deck was actually mono-white snow, which is a fairly different deck when you get into it. So I don't really want to rehash that conversation, but it got me thinking about this general topic of how do you attack a metagame? And when I say attack, what I mean is how do you make card and deck choices in a way that is likely to give you a good matchup against the field. So we hear a lot of pros and a lot of content creators talking about this all the time. It's one of the most important decisions to make when you're playing Magic. 
And basically, it's true across formats, whether you're playing limited, commander, any other constructed formats. This question of what do I think other people are going to play? What's good? How should I take that information and work with it? Is one of the things which, if you can supply smart answers and well-reasoned answers to those questions, you will increase your win percentage in Magic. It's a very broad topic, and we're definitely not going to just solve it for you forever. Each each meta is different. Some metas require interesting things of you. But I just wanted to touch on some of the fundamentals that you have to think about when you are doing this. So last week we spoke about CGB's mono white deck. Let's talk about a deck which was a recent victory of mine, right? Which we talked about on the show, which is Sultai Ultimatum. Why is that a deck which I and clearly a bunch of other people decided was going to be a good deck coming into this metagame, or at least seemed like a really strong option? So I'll just go into a little bit of my thought process around when I started to work with that deck. First things first, we had this new set come out. Obviously, when a new set comes out, you want to look and see what are the exciting cards? What are the powerful cards? What's happening? What are we getting? And one of the things that I noticed immediately when I looked at this new set was that there were some really good expensive cards. So Alrin's Epiphany being an excellent example of where to start. And Mm -hmm. a card that begs to be cheated with or broken in some way. Another card which I was really excited by was Valky. These are both cards which you'd love to play in your deck, but which a lot of people aren't necessarily excited to just tap out and spend seven mana to cast. So one of my thoughts was, hmm, supposing I could get a critical mass of really strong cards into the same deck together, cheat them into play with an ultimatum, and supposing this deck was, you know, full of cards which were kind of plausible to cast on their own anyway. And so Valky, uh, Tybalt slash Valky being an excellent example of a card that covers both. I was also thinking about other plausibly playable cards that you can put into a deck which can be expensive and good to resolve, but can also be played at different points on the curve. Shark Typhoon being an excellent example. So I decided to play some of those in my deck. So from that angle... One of the things that I was trying to do here was rather than react to a perceived metagame, I was thinking about establishing a powerful threat in a metagame. Now, CGB is raising his hand, so... Yeah, I'm curious, when were you hunting for ultimatum targets, or was that like something that popped in your mind the moment you read the new cards? Because if I had been, like, if I had ultimatum in my mind and I read the new cards, and it hit me that way, then I think I would have tried it sooner. So I'm curious, like, when was the ultimatum part of your equation? That's a really great question. I think, honestly, it may have come up for me when we were looking at the spoilers. I think yeah, that's really early. Like yeah. like, yeah, it didn't even occur to me while I was looking at the spoilers. Well, I think we were just having some conversation on the show about something that would be good to ultimatum out, and that, that may have actually been what got me going. Yeah, it was the demon. Like that was the one that the demon. that was the only one that brought that up for me. Yep. Uh, yep. Was thinking about the demon, but it didn't even occur to me how amazing an epiphany 
off of an ultimatum is. You know, that didn't that didn't pop in my head. And Valky really didn't. I think that's because it looks multicolored, but it doesn't uh it doesn't quack like a duck. It's Indeed. actually a monocolored card. Indeed. And that card just breaks so many rules. Um <laughs> it's actually led to changes in the way that the cascade rules are phrased. So definitely a game breaking card, which is another you know, interactions like this are definitely good to look out for in formats. It's a nice way to try to get ahead of the rest of the format is just by doing something a little bit more broken than anyone else is doing. Anyway, this is not to do a deep dive on that deck necessarily, but just to talk about how I identified a threatening package of cards, which was also fairly well supported in the format. We have Cultivate, we have decent ramp options. Ramp isn't as good as it used to be, but it's still fine. And there are still, you know, people have been playing teamer lists in the format, uh, like teamer ultimatum lists. Maybe they're not tier one right now, but they've been tier one at various points. And so these are the kinds of things that you can take into account. You can think, okay, you know, ramp's already been viable. Or, you know, as another example, a lot of people building teamer lists right now have been taking these gruel shells that were viable in the previous standard and porting them over. Why? Because these are these are proven piles of cards. People think, okay, if I add some different stuff to this deck, it could still be good because the core is this solid proven thing. So that's a really great place to start with a metagame as well. But what I'm getting around to here is that formats are basically pretty much about threats and answers. And so oftentimes when you're building a deck, you want to be thinking, is this more of a threat deck or more of an answer deck? And also, how do my threats and my answers line up in the format? Another cool thing to think about with the ultimatum deck is that we were sitting in a format in which control wasn't necessarily like a massive threatening part of the format. So I think if you are in a format, like let's say that you rewind a little bit into the worlds of yesteryear that was won by Polo Vitor Damodorosa running blue-white control, you probably wouldn't think about putting together a Sultai Ultimatum deck in that format because you just get laughed out of the room by counter spells. Anyway, this is an initial step into the thought process that goes into attacking a format. How are you processing this so far, CGB? So that was looking at the top of the format and saying what's available that's bigger. So when you're relating it to attacking a metagame, it helps to write out a few things about the format. Uh, two things that are very important. One, what is the biggest endgame that is common in the format? I think the answer in the previous format was Genesis Ultimatum. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. Team or ultimatum. And then, you know, along with other things, you want to write out, like, what is the fastest deck in the format? What is the most common deck in the format? What What is the best deck in the format if you play 20 turns? What is the best deck in the format if you play 10 turns? You know, those are ideas of how you can shape the boundaries of a format. And with the case of the Saltai deck, what you did was you said, okay, uh, if Genesis Ultimatum is like the best end game from the format that we know, we we talked about it on the show. What's better, five random cards off the top or two cards for free of your choice? And we decided that two cards of your free for free of your choice is better. The question was, are they good? And like we, the restrictions of the Ultimatum made it so that the cards we could fetch in the past 
made five random cards better because the options we had in the past weren't good. But now we have new options. And any two of those were better than the Genesis Ultimatum, which means like for the same cost in slightly different colors, you have a new top end of the format right now. If if you can put together a package for the Sultai Ultimatum that's better than five random cards, you have a new top end for the format that people haven't seen yet. And that that's why it's a good way to attack that metagame. Because if you can actually find a new top end that isn't too expensive, that is the same cost or cheaper than the previous top end, then you're doing it. Uh, that reminds me of like, when I looked at Omnath, the, the thing that was favored in long games of Magic in that format was Uro. Uro and Lucky Clover. Those, that, that was how games usually ended, right? And I looked at that and I said, Omnath, Omnath just starts that just starts that way sooner. Like you don't need turn six or seven to like cast Uro, bring back Uro, next turn attack with Uro to start the the train that rolls to your death. Or in Lucky Clover's case, it's usually around the turn that you've cast the Escape to the Wilds had been banned, but or it wasn't at that point. Anyway, it's usually the turn after the Escape to the Wilds, right? Or the turn after the double beanstalk giant with a clover out, right? That's when you Fey of Wishes and the 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 snowball's too powerful. And I was like, Omnath just starts that all on turn like f- four if you ramped and turn five if you didn't. That it's an it's a new top end to the format. It's a new like it's just a new thing. So that that's an example of looking at the boundaries, looking at new cards. How do they compare to those, and do they do something better at, sooner or at the same cost? Absolutely. I also think that for a deck like the current Sultai Ultimatum to be good, the format has to be a certain amount of slow. Because even though that deck has a fair number of good answers to aggressive decks, I really don't think that it would have been able to keep up in a format with, say, like when Mono Red was at its height, right? When you had like um, Runaway Steamkin and Light Up the Stage and all of these excellent, cheap, fast, snowball-y cards. I mean, who knows? We're not playing that standard, so we don't know. But I think that decks like these ultimatum decks get a lot worse when you have aggressive decks like that, which is so consistent, which have such a high card quality to them. I would think less about trying to find the most powerful top end in the format and more about, I think one of the reasons why the Tima Adventure, the Tima Clover lists was so genius in that format is that they found a way to go over the top of the format while also murdering these really excellent aggressive decks. So that's one of the things that Adventures has allowed us to do, which is one of the reasons it's such a broken mechanic, is that it allows you to both have game against aggro and build towards a fantastic top end, which is basically whatever you want it to be. Okay, so that's the ultimatum list. I think that's just another example of how to present problems in a format and how to ascertain that a format is kind of open for that style of deck. But here's here's another thought. A deck like the Sultai Ultimatum deck, I think would not match up well, even though it's an incredibly powerful deck, it wouldn't match up well, for example, with a format which had the previous iterations of Sultai. And I'm talking about the ones with Growth Spiral, Oro, Nissa, Krasis. And one of the reasons that it would not line up well is that those previous Sultai decks 
had such a powerful mid game and a mid game that could extend into the late game and all a all a deck like that would have to do to beat the Sultai deck is just sideboard and a couple of counter spells or main deck a couple of counter spells and you've basically got most of the punch of the of the ultimatum deck with very few of its weaknesses so i think that that's another thing to think about if there is another archetype in the format which is maybe not quite as powerful as what your top end is but whose mid game just absolutely slaughters what you're doing then that places a lot of restrictions on just how over the top the top end decks can get yeah the ability to create a quick threat and then protect it if that threat's hard to deal with or if they just have good protection spells that's usually a way to beat the top end of the format so when you're talking about attacking a metagame if there are seven mana spells being resolved and you don't know how to beat that one of the usual answers to that is you put out a threat that can kill and end the game quickly and you play a few counter spells so that you just hold off the big deck from doing their thing and the deck that is doing that right now in this meta and is doing very well at it is cycling cycling uh, as we talked about i think last week has become the kind of disruptive aggro deck because they can sideboard in a few mystical disputes they can play a fox they can play an improbable alliance they can make a bunch of fairies their fox can be huge and they can counter the big spell when you go for it or the sweeper that would wipe the board so they can end the game quickly and they can also burn your face with the uh, zenith flare so cycling is another deck that nobody was excited about a month ago and is now currently a player and it's because it attacked the metagame in a way that found the weak spot one of my favorite things when talking about attacking the metagame is what's the weak spot. When I was when I was playing mono white, uh, the weak spot was basically the size of the creatures. Like the the rage were these snow decks with faceless haven, and they could get a creature large. They had Maul the Skyclaves, they had Luminarch Aspirant, or in the case of mono red, they had Embercleave and Rimrock Knight. But there was kind of a ceiling on how far that goes. You know, like what would you say the biggest their creatures get? Six. Annex can get way up there, but we have some exile effects for that. Whereas, like mono white, like with the with the, like Linden or a bunch of life gain triggers and Heliod, everything can be like seven, eight, nine. Like you can get things as big as you need to as big as you need to go, as long as you have life gain triggers. You know what's the most tilting thing about those decks is how fat Daxos's butt gets. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, like exactly. You're exactly. like I attack with my Embercleave creature and you're like, great, I block it with a two ten Daxos that doesn't even die. Yeah. So it's it this is all part of finding a weak spot in the format. The main reason that the format had like a weak spot where a size could matter is because everybody wasn't punished for going for going wide. The only deck that did that was Saltai Ultimatum. Saltai Ultimatum was getting beaten up by Mono Red and Mono White with Snow because they had Faceless Haven, so their sweepers meant they still got punked out the next turn. So, if sweepers aren't that popular, and everybody is trying to put creatures on the board and also uh, activate Faceless Haven and things like that, then going wide becomes an option. And that's what Cycling took advantage of. That's what the Mono White Life Gain took advantage of. That's what all these Toski decks took advantage of. So... There's kind of a mental shift, and I hope I'm not taking you too far into a different topic, but I think it's a fun one. Yeah, I think there's a mental shift when it comes to looking at a format. We all focus on what's there. Like our podcast almost every week is almost completely about what's there 
And then maybe at the end, like with Danny T a few weeks ago and uh, what we often talk about, we say, well, what's what's going to be good next? You know, it's almost like a couple of sentences at the end. It's the afterthought. But it is a talent to look at a format, see what's there, but really see what's not there. Sweepers are not there. Okay, let's go freaking wide. Uh, huge creatures, like really tall creatures are not there. Let's go tall, you know. Um, the exile effects aren't there. Let's focus on indestructibility with our, our uh, with a dog protecting Redane and making everybody's life miserable. You know, things like this uh, really add up. And it's, it's really, to me, what the essence of attacking a metagame is. Focusing on what's, n- seeing what's not there. Seeing what is there, but really seeing what's not there. I love it. Uh, it's a really, really great point, and it really does give you clues as to why certain cards show up in the meta game. So, for an example, I think one of the reasons Elspeth Conquers Death was such a defining card in previous matters, the way that it is not right now, is that those were very planeswalker heavy matters. And so, ECD could do degenerate things where you know you'd play one or two planeswalkers in the early to mid game you'd control your opponent's board you'd get some value and just when your opponent had finally freaking dealt with them you know like is there any worse feeling than spending like three turns in the mid game figuring out how you're going to kill your opponent's nissa and then it just comes back (laughs) it's like (laughs) for free you know like nissa comes back and you have all of your mana available so it's things like that where now we're not in such a planeswalker heavy meta and the potential creatures that you get back with a card like ecd are really not that impactful and that's why it's still a player in the meta because it's a strong card but it's not nearly as dominant as it used to be and you don't see people having to you know board into configurations that tackle it because it's, you know, the the hits on it just are not as good as they used to be. And and what wasn't there, right? Back in those formats, what wasn't there was good cheap removal for planeswalkers. Eliminate wasn't in that format, right? Absolutely. So binding of the old gods wasn't in that format. Like there weren't just good ways to remove planeswalkers. So you would jump through all these hoops trying to eliminate them, only to have them come back. It made ECD so much more powerful. ECD is still the same card with the same text and the same effects in this format, but the cards I'm running to take advantage of it are Nico Aris, which when you play for three isn't very much loyalty and isn't very impressive and gets targeted by Eliminate and Frostbite, like they just wipe it off the board. Um, Archon of Sun's Grace dies to Heartless Act. Nice to get it back, but those two turns without it could just mean you're dead because you relied on four mana, no value on when it enters the battlefield. It has to hit. It has to attack or block to gain some life. And Heartless Act just says you don't get to, you know? So like these are weaknesses now that Elspeth Conquers Death didn't really have. It was just a free roll when you could play it to fairy, minus it, bounce something, anything, draw a card, and then the opponent has to figure out how to solve it. And you play ECD. If it hits anything, you get back a Teferi later. Like, the context just mattered so much that these planeswalkers were hard to kill. The opponent had to have a battlefield to do it. And if they had a battlefield, guess what they had? Things to hit with Elspeth conquers death. And the rest of your deck could focus on managing the battlefield. Now you have to focus your deck on so many things. That's just some of the context of ECD. Absolutely. And I love that you brought up cycling, actually, because cycling is a very particular deck. 
you know, like if we're talking about auto makes or something, then cycling is like the Volvo of the deck world. Or, I don't know. It's it's like this very, very, very particular deck. And um, and it shows up at particular times when matters do have certain weaknesses. And so I, you know, I think this is really cool because, for example, one of the things which cycling benefits from right now is that we don't have another really oppressive graveyard deck in the format. And so let's say that we were in like a cat oven format, heaven forbid, if the cat hadn't been banned. And let's say that Rakdos or Jund was still a tier one deck in the format. I highly doubt that you would be able to play something like cycling because the splash damage would just be too much. You'd have all of these people like main decking scavenging ooze, which we haven't seen as much of recently. You'd have people main decking all of this graveyard hate. You can't devote that much of your effort and your attention in your decks these days to the graveyard because you know you're getting beaten down by adventures you're having to deal with your opponent trying to take extra turns you're trying to exile your opponent's toski deal with your opponent's embercleave yeah we can't just throw in a cling to dust or a soul guide lantern and think that we're going to get away with that against an embercleave deck if you don't impact things every single turn they're going to kill you and we also have seen the decline of the rogues deck in the format as well, which again was a deck which kind of made you think a lot more about the graveyard and you had more cards to interact with the graveyard. And again, it's a, it's a definitely a different idea there, but the format has shifted. So we've observed this move away from graveyard decks. And so cycling emerges as this funky graveyard deck which doesn't play turn to turn like a graveyard deck. It just happens to have a graveyard win condition in the form of the Zenith Flare. As one of its win conditions, <laughs> one, which is an important point. Conditions. Mm -hmm. So, and let's talk about this because I think that this might be a good example of how you attack a meta. So I've noticed that these cycling decks have changed from previous iterations. I've noticed that Improbable Alliance, which is a card that a lot of people tried in previous metas, and it seemed to kind of consensus was that that card wasn't very good in the past. That card seems to have been elevated recently. And I wonder, do you think CGB, is that because we're seeing like these Naya go wide decks and like a bunch of spirits getting made and stuff like that? Do you think that that partially explains why these cycling decks are spending cards trying to develop a wide board? I think that it's a variety of things. There aren't a ton of Skyclave apparitions, except in like the mono white aggro deck, which is a card that can pick that card off. And even then, you can often make a 1-1 one, one very quickly. And aside from that, there aren't many ways to kill it. Like, it, it's just kind of a pesky little thing. You don't want to spend a Binding of Old Gods on it. It's double the, the mana cost, you know? It's very slow. Plus, they have creatures that are hitting you. So it's, it's a pain in the butt to remove. That's part of it. The other part of it, we talked about the go-wide thing. Um, even against sweepers, Improbable Alliance is good. But going wide is very much an option in this format. And going wide with tokens making several tokens every turn can block against the decks that also go wide so if your opponent's going wide how are you going to deal with that this deck needs to buy time it would love to block a bunch of things so it can go wide itself trample as a keyword how much trample is there mm. in this format mm. good question yeah almost almost not outside of ember cleave yep ember cleave and questing beast are cards that kind of punish it mono red is a tough matchup for cycling. And actually, the tournament I casted uh, last weekend that had 
Cycling after Swiss was number one, two, and three. Two undefeateds and one, five, and one. Like that was the top of Swiss. Cycling, cycling, cycling. What happened in the tournament? Top eight, mono red versus mono red was the finals. You know, so mono red like found its solution. Ember Cleave gets you through that stuff. That's important. But aside from that card and with Gruul Adventures on the decline and with Nye Adventures not playing Ember Cleaves and playing Great Henge because that's what the MPL split did, it was like there isn't that much trample. There isn't that much of that thing in the meta for this last few weeks. So you can go wide with a bunch of tokens. You can chump block the opponent's Luminarch Aspirant with a Sky Maul for like infinite turns. Everything's fine. And you can buy the time you need to Zenith Flare or do whatever you need to for the win con. So suddenly Improbable Alliance goes from being, I play this and not much happens. The opponent just slices right through me to this bought me like five turns. Five turns with cycling, you can go through your whole freaking deck. that's the way the the deck works yeah and you know what gold spend dragon really hates is like a bunch of one one chump blockers yeah you know good point it's like you you know hates that they need these gold span decks need an additional way to win if you're clogging up the air right they need to have their fling combo or whatever you know whatever other way they're exploiting that dragon so Yeah, it's just a really good example of you look at all of the cards in the deck and what the game plan is trying to do, and it's just lining up well with a lot of the top stuff in the format. And I also think this is a great highlight of how cycling is like always this deck. It's like waiting in the wings. It's a deck that can be tier one on any weekend, but it's often not. There are decks that are inherently powerful and are always going to be a player in the format because they are like the fastest or the best end game or the best mid-range deck. Like once you establish what those are, those are always going to be players and they can change their card selection to be better in this matchup and better in that matchup. I'm thinking of like Teamer and Naya and Sultai and probably Mono Red, right? Like those decks are always players. They can change their cards around and try to figure out where they fit in that meta cycling has to pick its spot it has to say this you know this is the week when they're not ready for what i do and you show up and maybe you get one or two weeks out of it cycling is a great example because people hate that they hate to respect it (laughs) they actually don't want it to be good so you can sometimes get a solid month out of cycling where people aren't even trying to beat you they're trying to figure out how to big brain the next mid-range deck and you're like as you know player you suckers <laughs> yep yeah. good good times <laughs> i was recently brewing and thinking about another way to attack the standard format and one of the things that i came upon was an old strategy i liked from yesteryear not by any means like a tier one meta deck but a deck that i've had a lot of luck with on the ladder in the past and it seems to be fairly good right now which is this Simic, uh, Simic Epiphany build. I'll, I'll just kind of outline what the deck's trying to do. So the deck's playing Joel Rail. It's also playing the Lanawa Visionary. It's got the Simic Adventure package. So, you know, we've got Fae of Wishes, Brazen Borrower, Lovestruck Beast, and the Innkeeper. And then it plays a couple of copies of the Four Mana Teferi plays a couple of copies of Sublime Epiphany, and it plays a number of copies of Elder Gargaroth. This deck, it does not sound particularly good. <laughs> like, if you go down the list, it just doesn't sound particularly impactful. But one of the reasons I reached for this deck was that I felt like it lined up very, very well with what people were trying to do in the game. 
So one of the things that I liked about it was that if you're going wide, Joel Rail is the best go wide card in the format. If you are cranking out a bunch of creatures, and at some point in the mid game you get to turn all of them into four fours or five fives, you win a go wide mirror. You win most creature matchups. And so in order to accentuate that, I'm playing four copies of a Seeker's Chariot. And so one of the things that you can do with this deck is just put eight cats onto the battlefield and then turn them all into four fours or five fives and just kill your opponent. Now, what happens if your A plan doesn't work? So one of the reasons that I liked the Elder Gargaroth package is that Gargaroth lines up surprisingly well against the threats in the format. It's bigger than the Lovestruck Beast. It blocks the Goldspan Dragon. It definitely has weaknesses, with Giant Killer being probably the worst one. It also gets Brazen Borrowed, so if I'm playing against anyone who runs Brazen Borrower, I probably side it out. It's just a little bit too slow for that matchup. Um, another thing that I like about running blue in this format is that you get to run counter spells, and I've consistently found that the combination of pressure and counter spells can slaughter Sultai. Sultai has a really hard time with like Lovestruck Beast into Mystical Dispute. It's just like that kind of stuff, those kind of combinations can be very, very difficult for that deck to deal with. And then finally, if your opponent's doing some kind of like Naya nonsense, as I like to call it, a deck which is not particularly fast, but which likes to build a large board and kind of crush you with just putting more bodies on the board, drawing more cards, resolving a bunch of showdown of the skulls and stuff like that. So the ultimate way to deal with a deck like that is Ugin. And so when you run Fae of Wishes, especially four of them in your deck, at any point in the mid to the late game, basically you can go to your sideboard and get Ugin and basically put your opponent on a one-turn clock. So anyway, is this deck great? I don't know. I've been like on a win streak with it on the ladder. I think I'm something like 85% in best of three playing this deck. But it's just an example of if you think about what's happening in a format and you think about what lines up well against a lot of the defining mechanics and archetypes, and then a deck that also gives you back doors into having good answers against to what's you know happening in the format. You can come up with a weird list like this, which it doesn't seem particularly strong, but if you kind of go down the matchups and you think, wow, I have really plausible answers to all of these matchups, I think that you can end up with some cooler decks that way, and I think that that's the kind of thing that you do a lot really well, CGB. Thanks. The, the, the whole thing was about the deck that you built. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty smart. And then he th throws it back to me. I'm like, well, no, I, I, no, it sounds like you did it to me. Well, I I see you doing this stuff a lot, CGB, right? Where you will evaluate a number of these knobs and dials in the format. And then you'll throw together these lists, which are kind of go down and check the boxes and often in a Yorian shell or whatever. So I just gave a rundown there. I'm curious if there's another example of like recent deck lists that you've built or tried or whatever that you feel satisfy that, where you, where you can kind of go through the list and rationalize why it matches up well. Nearly every deck that I try to make a video with, like I, I, I try to make this clear and it, it's weird because it's not common sense, I think on YouTube or, or on Twitch for creators, but I play Magic to win. So I want every single one of my decks to have 
good matchups in the meta and attack the meta that I expect in one way or another. And today's video is a transmogrify a token into a dream trawler deck. In best of one, how many people kill a dream trawler easily? Like it's yeah. so rare. This is <laughs> this is a move I pull out every month. At least once a month, I will pull out a deck that says, "Yeah, they but nobody's trying to kill dream trawler, are they?" <laughs> and and you know, that's uh, an example of a card that just attacks the meta. So if you find a way to play dream trawler on turn 4, like like that's even more you can do it two ways. I mean, we can ramp out the Dream Trawler, or we can build our game plan around surviving until we cast the Dream Trawler. Ramping out the Dream Trawler is often a little bit better if you have a feasible way to do it, because surviving for several turns is very hard. Your cards have to line up with multiple of their cards well. Like that That's the only way it works. And in best of one, that's really hard. In Magic in general, that's really hard. I think even in best of three after sideboarding, People still often sideboard in their cards that are good in the matchup and good opponents sideboarding cards that their sideboarded cards didn't account for. Like, so you, or, you or still they sideboard out the cards that the opponent's cards oh, were yeah. trying to answer. Yeah. I, I've seen so many interesting like matches and, and sob stories where the opponent's like, I sideboard in four mystical disputes. Well, I sideboarded out my Yorians and sideboarded in Elder Gargaroth. So, you know, they <laughs> yeah. leave a mana open. They leave two mana open, right? And they have negate and mystical dispute. And they're like, nothing can touch me. Yeah. Gargaroth. <laughs> they look at their hand. They think about the heartless acts that now live in the sideboard. They yeah. think about their life choices and how it came to this. And like, so no matter what deck you're playing, the longer a game you're going to play, the harder it is to match up your answers with their threats. That's just hard to do with the way that threats are worded nowadays. Look at all the cards that have plus one, plus one counters somehow. And then you look at a card like Heartless Act that should be a kill everything and somehow isn't, right? Like we've all died because the thing had a stupid counter for some random reason, right? So the, the, the idea with attacking a format is that it's much easier to have like a, an attacking plan that threads the needle than to answer everything. But what I really like to do, and this is the thing that I think makes me pretty unique, I like to find things that somehow answer everything, that somehow answer what I'm going to run into the most. So I can play a deck like a Jeskai Dream Trawler deck with a Transmogrify and a bunch of things that make tokens. And I won't have any counters in that deck. I'll have like Glass Caskets and Scorching Dragonfire and Fire Prophecy, like all these things that deal with creatures. And you're like, but what if you run into Sultai? You know, what if you run into that? It's like, well, I'm not excited about that matchup. But let me tell you this. What if I turn three Raven's Warning, <laughs> turn four Transmogrify it into a Trawler, and then the next turn I go put like the counter spell I need on top of my library and draw it with my Dream Trawler? Like yeah, that that's good. that's turn five. Mm -hmm. It's it's the slightest bit faster than the typical ultimatum cultivate into ultimatum draw. And it I mean it puts them on a clock. And I did that out of a control shell that's heavily slanted against aggro. So I love finding like the weird I love finding the weird ways that answer a ton of what I expect in the meta, but have this out game this this backup plan i know exactly what i have to do when i find out when i see yorian lining up across from me i try to keep a hand that will do it you hope for the best is it narrow sometimes does it work more than you think absolutely you know I, it's these are cases where cards like elspeth's nightmare 
can be really good, right? Because they line up well against aggro and they give you a backdoor into disrupting your control opponent's hand. Sometimes cards like that give you just enough in even in a bad matchup that they can kind of keep you in it, right? Until you can get your next transmogrify off or whatever it is that you need to do. Very helpful to have cards that are flexible like that, that can do something good across multiple matchups. All, all the time people are like, uh, you know, Murderous Rider or Eat to Extinction and cards like this that remove a creature or Planeswalker. It's like, well, if they don't have a creature, they'll have a Planeswalker. Not necessarily anymore. Not really. And they're expensive for their cost. But then you look at Binding the Old Gods. It's like, oh, oh that's any, any non-land permanent. With upside. I, I'm, I don't know about you. I've played Binding just to ramp the next turn. I've done it. Oh, seriously, man. <laughs> There's a reason that came out of the pre-release being maybe my favorite card of the set. You can't argue with Destroy Target Non-Land Permanent. You really can't. Binding is probably the reason that's a Yorian pile, by the way. Like, it, you could cut Omen from Omen of the Sea from that deck. You'd probably still want Yorian because of Binding. <laughs> Because the de- like the bad case is you have binding in your hand and Yorian in your companion zone and you can buy Yorian, then binding, then Yorian, the binding. Like that's that's just nuts in the mid game, like on its own. Absolutely. I also think it highlights another reason. There are so many reasons why Yorian decks end up being like mid to late game decks. But one of them is just that if you reach later in the game and you're flooding out or you're kind of running out of things to do yorian is like it's just the best actual creature companion yorian can actually just kill your opponent yeah that it's hard to get that guy ruda into your decks but yorian (laughs) isn't the price isn't that steep and the body like they do have to kill it i i can i can ignore like a three two kahira for a good amount of time probably but a 4-5 flyer is going to rumble with most cards in standard. Once you've, It may not be a great rate on its own, but once you've paid the cost, now the opponent can look at it and say, well, it's just a 5-mana 4-5 flying, but you still better kill it. <laughs> Dude, I mean, you can't you just a choice. run a goldspan dragon into that, you know? Yeah, <laughs> You can't exactly. run a questing beast into Yorian, you know? It's just... So, yeah, I think that that's an underrated aspect of why you see, like, so many controlling and kind of long game decks running Yorian is 4-5 Flyer is it's a pretty powerful card in Magic, even if it's overcosted, even if whatever. Yeah. You, just, you yeah, always I, have... I think of, like, last format, there was the Demir Control Ugin decks, and they may have had some Solemns. I think those were cut from the deck by the end of the that deck's run but i think it was really like four omen of the sea and yorian and it's like <laughs> why like yeah. why, like you're not blinking anything and it's like well um i'm a control deck who wants to play ugin it takes a long time to get the mana to play ugin i want to run multiple ugins because i need to handle all these freaking ultimatum gamers and all the other stuff but i don't want to draw too many ugins so you go to 80 cards you add Maze Mind Tome, you scry through it. You add Omens, you scry through it. You're more likely to get Ugin when you can cast Ugin. And sometimes I just have a 4-5. You know who cares less about spending 8 mana for their Yorian is, I don't know, a deck that is trying to hit a land drop every turn ever. Yep. <laughs> like, what control deck is not trying to put at least one land into play every turn regardless of the length of the game? 
Yeah, I, this is something where Commander, I think, actually helped me a lot with understanding companions. Because plenty of times in Commander, I'll pay like 11 mana for my Commander. and Like Cosima's the best example I have recently. I, play, I paid 11 mana for my 2-4, you know? <laughs> I had a lot of mana. The game went long. I didn't have much to do. So uh, just having something to do is so much better than nothing, even when it's a terrible rate. But that's probably a different conversation. I don't know if that's the attacking the metagame conversation. But we did, in Yorian fashion, we blinked ourselves and we looped all the way back to the start of today's show about Yorian decks. <laughs> and to prevent the awful occurrence of the hours-long Yorian mirror match from occurring, I think now is a good time to wrap up the show. Uh, are there any final thoughts that you have, CGB? Like, okay, let's say that someone's going out into the wild, wide world of the arena ladder after listening to this show. Like, what are just a few things that you might relay to them to get them pointed in the right direction with the matter? Well, you probably have some cards that you really like, and I think you have to have an honest talk about yourself, with yourself, about these cards, and how they actually line up. And the the beauty of it is when you dig deep and you find that card that when you have that honest conversation, you look out at the meta and you say, how does it match up against this deck, this deck, this deck, and this deck? And you say, oh, oh man, like nobody nobody's doing this. Uh, a great example was when the Great Henge was popping off at the beginning of the last format. Nobody's killing artifacts. They just don't do it. Like Lucky Clover left the format. Everybody was like, wilt free, baby. We're, we're just, we just don't care anymore. And uh, it was like, oh, well, if I turn for Great Henge, I win? Okay. So have that honest conversation about that card that you like. What deals with it well? What doesn't deal with it well? And can you like find that hole in the meta? If, if it doesn't line up well, find another cool card. Like There's a lot of them. We have a lot of cards in Magic. Even in a small format like Standard, there's a lot of options. A Dream Trawler, like I said, is one of my pets that I go to every month. You can probably find some of yours. And there are people who love cards like Tergrid, you know, God of Fright. It's like, okay, have an honest talk about what that's good at, what it's not good at, what it's good against, what it's not good against. Build around the strengths. See if you can work out the weaknesses and then wait for the meta that you need it to work on and then bust it out. That's what I got for you. All right, so that's all we're going to do with this episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the Arena Craft Podcast on Spotify. You can find us on YouTube. You can find us most places you might want to and expect to find this show. You can also find Covert Go Blue on YouTube. You can find him on the Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash Covert Go Blue. Yeah, I think that's going to be a wrap, man. Looking forward you, to next you week. Are also, uh, you're also twitching a little I'm more. I'm twitching a, a little? little. A little. Is that the Arena Craft Podcast on, twi- on Twitch? Yeah, twitch.tv forward slash Arena Craft Podcast. I, you know, honestly, I stream when I feel like it, which sometimes means three times a week and sometimes means not for a couple of weeks. So, but yes, you can stop by. I always enjoy it when people say hi. Like, for example, there was the historic release, so I had to try Cat Packed this past week. So <laughs> that was a stream. In one sentence, describe the, the status of Cat Packed. The demons won, man. <laughs> the demons won. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> Liliana did not cheat death as much as I wanted her to. Let's put it that way. <laughs> okay. Understood. You know, okay. This isn't this is violating the one sentence. But you know what happened to me? So I took my cat packed deck on the historic best of one ladder. You know what you never saw in the past on the historic best of one ladder was Demir. Enchantment hate. I was going to say Demir control decks. Okay. <laughs> when, uh, when was the last time you got thought erasured in historic? Because. Uh, yesterday. <laughs> really? Okay. Well, yes. it's a thing. It's a thing now. Because I'll it tell is. you what, man. I played historic for literally months at the end of last year. I don't think I saw a single thought erasure. So I was playing against these decks, you know, like I'll tell you, Cat Pack does not line up well against decks that run like 12 hand disruption spells. I'm like, oh, I drew a harmless offering. Yeah, well, my opponent takes that. Okay, all right. Well, this uh, this demonic pact is sure ticking away. And then like I get my <laughs> Yorium back and then it gets thought seized. And I'm just like, I can't operate within these parameters, man. <laughs> My takeaway from Historic is that Historic is Thoughtseize the format. <laughs> it is, man. Uh, it really is. If you thought Thoughtseize was good pre-Historic Anthology 4, oh damn, do I have Dude, news for you. <laughs> just don't even look at your hand during your opponent's turn. Only look at your hand on your turn after your draw step, because you're only going to get disappointed. Like, yeah. leave the room. <laughs> You'll yeah. just feel better. Anyway. Anyway. We were, we were, we were going to wrap it up. We digress. Perhaps, perhaps the topic of next week's show on the Arena Craft Podcast. Anyway, thanks, crafties. We will catch you next week. Take it easy, Kovac Blue. Take it easy, Arjuna. And later, crafties. Bye.